Excuse me, please. Hi, fella. Come and have a beer with us. Uh, uh. Welcome to The Last New Wave, the uh, podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. For the month of October 2016, we're looking at the Australian New Wave period, which was essentially the period between uh, that began in the 1970s and led through to the late 80s. And to discuss that, I'm joined by my perennial co-host, Bernadette, and we're going to just run down a bit of what the Australian New Wave was about and how it had an effect on Australia in a way. And, yes, hello. <laughs> and and then we'll have a short discussion and then we'll lead into the first film that we'll be discussing within this series, which is Ted Kotcheff's Wake in Fright. So, the Australian New Wave. It's often seen as the finest years of Australian cinema. Um, not only is it the era this podcast cribs its title from, besides, of course, David Stratton's book, which uh, focuses on the era, uh, but it's also the era that helped establish some of the titans of the Australian film industry that have helped shape cinema in many different ways. Directors such as George Miller, Peter Weir, Gillian Armstrong and Brian Trenchard-Smith all helped shape the scene that was Australian cinema. I forgot to note as well in my writing down, um, you know, the, the period of the Australian New Wave was so prolific that there were two George Millers at that time as well. So there was... George Miller, who did Mad Max, and there, then there was George T. Miller as well, who was not as prolific and didn't have as much of a as impact as George Miller did. Um, the Australian New Wave was earmarked as a period between 1970 and ran through to the late 80s, and was the, the revival of Australian cinema in a way. Films were sporadically made within Australia after World War II, often using foreign directors to tell, in inverted commas, Australian stories. Uh, such as the Best Picture nominee, The Sundowners, for example. However, these films could never be truly considered Australian films due to being financed by overseas companies and filled with non-Australian cast members, usually doing a pretty poor representation of an Australian accent. Not that this mattered anyhow, as films made within Australia had become a rarity. The, the average output of films was about two to three a year, hardly enough to sustain a film industry. Then something happened in the late 60s to early 70s. Prime Ministers Sir John Gorton and Gough Whitlam came into power and virtually rescued the Australian film industry from imminent death. Recognising the importance of films as a way for culture to create and show its identity, federal and state government funding bodies were established to help young directors and artists create films. In 1972, the Australian Film television and radio school was created, opening in 1973 with the first round of students, including Gillian Armstrong and Philip Noyce. Armstrong went on to create one of the great Australian feminist films, My Brilliant Career, later creating films in both Australia and America, with entries such as Little Women and The Recent Women He's Undressed. Philip Noyce created films such as Newsfront, which documented the history of Australian television. Yes, and he's he is quite a prolific director as well, both domestically and internationally. Yes. I mean, people would know that he did quite a few of the um, Jack Ryan films yes. too, uh, starring Harrison Ford. 
um, Ford and stuff like fence, that. Probably one of his yeah, rabbit proof fence as well. Australia. Yeah. Mm. Um, so thanks to the funding by the government, suddenly a film industry was born. There was a massive amount of energy and excitement around the industry, as if a thousand of thousands of voices were suddenly allowed to freely shout out loud. Films were created to entertain and excite, as were George Miller's post-apocalyptic Mad Max films and Brian Trenchard Smith's explosive genre entertainment like The Man from Hong Kong and BMX Bandits. But they were also created to criticise and essay the Australian landscape, as seen with films like Ted Kotcheff's Wake and Fright and Fred Skepsis searing the, the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. It's a testament to the talents involved that these are still relevant films that speak about Australia's love affair with alcohol, or a heinous history with the way traditional owners are treated. It wasn't just that great directors who were suddenly spawned from this new industry. Actors and writers were given another avenue to showcase their talents. Of course, Mel Gibson is one of the poster boys for the Australian New Wave era, having starred in films like Mad Max and Peter Weir's Gallipoli. But joining him were actors like Judy Davis, Brian Brown, Jackie Weaver, John Hargraves, Jack Thompson, and many, many more. The rugged, unique Australian face was being seen on screen, and it made Australian audiences feel like they were seeing themselves. There was no cultural cringe, that, of course, would come later with Crocodile Dundee, and audience, audiences actually sought out these films. It wasn't until much later on that Australian cinema goers started rejecting the idea of going to see Australian cinema. Writers who worked, whose work was usually restricted to the theatre were given access to the cinema as well, with the great David Williamson being the voice that carried through the New Wave era, the most with films like The Removalist, The Club, Stork and Gallipoli. His writing showcased lower middle class Australia, The Battlers, The Strugglers, The Everyday Australian was finally being displayed on screen. As a significant voice of, during the New Wave period, Williamson was vital to the directors in shaping the output of Australian cinema during the, during the era. Popular films like Mad Max were redubbed with American voices, as the original Australian accent was felt to be too alienating for foreign audiences. I refuse to believe. <laughs> <laughs> Genre cinema was at its peak. Horror, science fiction, sex comedies, they all flooded the market, and thanks to their genre roots, they had international success. Sure, there was domestic success as well, but given the insular nature of the Australian economy, international success was necessary to encourage the continuation of Australian cinema. It was during this period that Australia's most successful film was created. Yep, you guessed it, Andrew's favourite film. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. After all these years, it still stands as the biggest box office success we've ever had. Yep. Which is a little bit sad. Yeah, um, it's crazy. <laughs> but I'd have to say the cultural cringe with that one, I think, came a bit later. I don't think when it came out. It wasn't a I think when it came yeah. out, everyone was just excited that something that had all these Australian... Even even though they were very caricaturish, mm. they were still you know there's a reason things become a caricature, become a stereotype. It's because they are true to a certain degree. Well, I do I do wonder, and sorry to sidetrack for yeah. a second, but I do wonder if the cultural cringe came alongside films like The Castle, which yes, many people embrace, but there is an element of that film that does feel like it's taking the piss out of the people that it's representing on screen. Yeah, but there's a difference. The the castle was our own creation mm. and our own success. Crocodile, Crocodile Dundee really feels like it was made for an American market yeah. or for an international market. Um, so I think that, that there is that, not necessarily cultural cringe with that, but maybe a little bit of a backlash in terms of an annoyance by some of 
by some film lovers that it is still our most successful film. Mm. Um, you know, when, when in reality we've created a lot of very interesting and unique films um, that, that go about showcasing Australian culture, Australian identity, and, and criticising that as well, not just celebrating it. Yeah. And yet we still can't seem to topple that. <laughs> topple that. Not even well, Baz Luhrmann's Australia can do that. I, I think that's actually the second Oh, is it? Okay, film. well, there you so, go. I'd prefer Australia over Crocodile Dundee, I have yeah. to admit. Um, although I know that film has a, a lot of um, detractors as well. True. The American film industry stands by itself as a circular economy. Countries such as Australia and the UK still rely heavily on their retrospective governments to assist with the creation of films. One would think that after the booming success of the Australian New Wave and its continuation to the early 90s, that Australian cinema would have been able to stand up on its own. However, that is not the case. Thankfully, the Australian government's involvement within the Australian film industry at the time did not dictate what films were produced. And that, there is sort of questions in a way whether that does that has changed as the years have gone by, whether the Australian government has had a greater say in what Australian cinema is being produced, mm. but... I think that's a discussion for a different podcast mm. in the future. <laughs> um, if there was a through line within Australian films during that period, it was the introspective look at who we were as a country. After Australia's involvement in World War II, there was a desire to assess the Australian male as its own unique figure. Films like Sunday Too Far Away or Wake and Fright looked at the Australia's working man, the hard yakka mentality of the outback of what effect that had on a man. On a flip side, you also had films like Fred Skepsis' stunningly caustic The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which essayed the retaliation of Indigenous Australia on the evading white Australia. Which leads us to the first film that we'll be discussing in this set of episodes on the Australian New Wave, Wake and Fright. Ted Kotcheff, a Canadian, employed a British actor, Gary Bond, to lead a uniquely Australian story. To top it off, American Donald Pleasance was cast as the somewhat insane Doc Titan. Wake and Fright is unique in that it's a genuinely a film that could not have been made anywhere else. It's terrifying. It's damning. It's a fever dream captured on film. Uh, the other films as well that we'll be discussing in this series, um, taking a bit of a slice of, of everything that has been offered during this period, and given that there were some 400 films made during 1970 to the late 80s, it's very hard for us to cover all of them. Um, it's for next year. That's for next year, yeah. <laughs> we will be covering My Brilliant Career on a future episode, and I'm certain that there will be more of these films from this period discussed on future episodes. But for the time being, the other films that we'll be discussing as well are Brian Trenchard Smith's The Man from Hong Kong, uh, which is getting a new 4K Blu-ray release at the end of October uh, with Umbrella Entertainment, who do a great job of releasing Australian films on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, Bruce Berryford's Puberty Blues, which you'll be joining me to discuss. One of my favourite films. Yes, and Russell Mulcahy's Razorback. So there's a lot of, as I mentioned, there's a lot of great films that were released during that period. And, you know, um, you know, just to rattle off a few, you've got Stork, uh, Alvin Purple, Cars at Eight Paris, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Don's Party, Storm Boy, um, as mentioned, Chance of Jimmy Blacksmith, Long Weekend, Mad Max, Angry Odd, The Odd Angry Shot, Breaking Morant, uh, Mad Max 2, of course, uh, Harlequin, Road Games, Man from Snowy River, Monkey Grip, We of the Never Never, uh, Year of Living Dangerously, which I think some people would consider 
like not realise that that's an Australian film. Yes. Um, Farlap, uh, Bliss, which we discussed on the first episode yes. with Lantana, uh, Malcolm, Dead End Drive-In, The Year My Horse, my, The Year My Horse Broke, The Year My Voice Broke, which says, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because the one that's underneath is The Light Horseman, which... Uh, for people that listen to the interview with the director of Red Billabong, that was the Australian film that he recommended people mm. seek out. And then in the late 80s, you also had the beginning of Yahoo! Serious with Young Einstein as well. So, you know, there's a lot of really fascinating films. And one film that you continue to remind me about as well is Evil Angels or was it Cry in the Dark? In- Cry in the Dark. Yes. It's so, very... Um, uh- relevant at the moment because I feel like ever since now I'm a crime fanatic yeah and I watch a lot of crime documentaries because I'm just sad that way <laughs> um, I think it's a very female thing as well we, we tend to love it um, with the success of these recent OJ Simpson documentaries and TV series yeah you've had this whole spur spew of <laughs> the only way I can put it of John Bonet Ramsey documentaries and apparently there's a uh, Menendez Brothers series uh. about to start, and um, A Cry in the Dark or Evil Angels. Yeah. It takes a look at, you know, Australia's sort of um, uh, foray into into that, that idea that we can um, blame particularly a mother mm. or a father for a death if they don't react in the, the way that we consider appropriate yes. in terms of grief. Yeah, and maybe um, we'll cover that film on a future episode. I'm sure, and, uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure this phrase will give you some idea. A dingo ate my baby. Yes, and it stars, <laughs> it stars the great Sam Neill as well as Meryl Streep. Maybe we'll do a, a crime film month and pair that with Snowtown and a couple of other oh God, uh, Australian crime films. Yes. Um, anyway. Yeah. So there, you know, there is a lot of great films that were created during that period, and a lot of classic films and films that certainly have a massive impact on the way that cinema kind of moved forward. I mean, yes, there were kind of post-apocalyptic films before Mad Max, but. Mm. The Mad Max series itself really had a, a major effect on cinema. It as did, a whole. and it continues to yeah. have a major effect now. Oh yes, so it does. many years after the the last in the sequel. Yeah, and one of the things that you'll hear as well when we touch on uh, the Man from Hong Kong, which is very exciting because I'm joined uh, to discuss the film uh, with director Miranda Sajak, and as well, there's also going to be an interview with Brian Trenchard Smith, which is. A fascinating interview. Um, you know, he's the director of the film. Yeah, he's the director of The Man from Hong Kong and one of the biggest fans of that film and his films in general, as well as the whole period, uh, which I'm sure many people are already aware of, is Quentin Tarantino. He yes. absolutely loves The Man from Hong Kong and he loves Dead End Drive-In yeah. and he loves Turkey Shoot and loves all those sorts of films. Yes. And Certainly when you watch The Man from Hong Kong, again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when we discuss that film in length, you'll understand. Mm. If you'd like to learn more about Tarantino's love affair with some of these Australian films, just watch the documentary. Not Quite quite Hollywood. Hollywood, Yeah, Yeah. which is a great documentary. Mm, Yeah, And, you know, there there are certain scenes in The Man from Hong Kong which really feel like they could have easily, you know, just kind Mm. of... He's taken the idea and mm. supplanted it well, to kill Bill. Well, that's the thing Bill. with Tarantino, isn't he? He's, yeah. He's like, like a lot of other filmmakers, but 
I guess because he shares so much about his obsession with film. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, as a, as, an, as a fellow film lover that unfortunately doesn't have the creative um, talent and juices that he does to create my own content, it is, it is interesting to see him talk about films that he loves. Yeah. And then see his work and see how he does, he is influenced by that. And then sometimes, you know, rips it off in the sense, but not in a way that he's doing it because he doesn't know what to do himself. Yeah. He's doing it to, um, you know, praise that certain film or, you know, make us some sort of meta reference. You know, yeah. it is all about him loving film. Exactly. And there are many, many interviews and discussions which you can find on YouTube where he talks about Australian cinema and there's a particular interview and I'll put it in the show notes for the Man from Hong Kong episode uh, of him talking with Brian Trenchard-Smith about that film. Um, But I guess for now we should probably head on to uh, hearing the discussion that I had with Michael from War Machine vs. War Horse about Wake and Fright. Now one of the things which is really interesting about Wake and Fright as well is that it is a film that we're lucky to have. Uh, it, you know, for for many many years it was considered lost, um, and there was a specific producer who spent about thirty years seeking out the film and hunting it down because it was co-financed by Australian and American companies, and American companies went out of out of business. They went bankrupt, and as happens with film uh, with companies that go bankrupt the stock that they own or the, the stuff that they own kind of gets swapped between hands and ends up in the middle of nowhere. And the producer, as you'll hear, I'll play a quick clip of Ted Kotcheff explaining how this particular, the, the, the print, the negative was found of Wake and Fright. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's very lucky because, uh, you know, it was about a week away from being destroyed. So, we're very, very fortunate to have Wake and Fright on film. Uh, it is a great, great film. Uh, and as you'll hear in the discussion as well with Michael from War Machine vs. War Horse, um, it does have graphic kangaroo deaths in it. They are mm. real kangaroo deaths, uh, but they were organized by hunters. We do actually um, cull kangaroos. Yeah, we do cull kangaroos here in Australia. It wasn't just something we decided to do. Um... Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it was filmed for the film. Yes. But it was going to happen but it is anyway. A practice that, yeah, exactly. Just to give people a. So if you are interested in watching the film, just keep that in mind that there is a sequence. And unlike uh, Cannibal Holocaust, when that was released on, on Blu ray, uh, you can't skip over the, the mm-hmm. animal deaths. <laughs> uh, it is a massive part of the actual story yeah. and it's a really effective moment. And it's a very um, telling part of the character development. It is, yeah. Uh, so with that in mind, let's have a quick listen to Ted Kotcheff talk about Wake and Fright, and then we'll be back to talk with Michael. Thanks. Um, United Artists, when they distributed it in New York, uh, changed the title to Outback. And he said, Outback? Sounds like a National Geographic documentary. What, what's, what's the matter with Wake and Fright? He said, sounds like a Hitchcock film. I said, that's bad. <laughs> but I didn't win that fight. It came out as Outback, even though I, I thought that, I thought it was, I, thought, I didn't think it was a very commercial title even. What does it mean, Outback? You know, Outback where? Outback of your house? <laughs> 
But and Wake and Fright was what the film was about. A guy who suddenly discovers, wakes up and sees what, the person he's capable of being. He doesn't like what he sees. Anyway. No, let's stay right with that. I mean, what, what did you expect upon the release of Wake and Fright in 1971? And, and now, what do you expect 40 years later, it being released um, in the, right now? Well, when I made the film in 1970 in Australia, um, and and I, I thought the film was beautifully written and it was well realized and and uh, however when it was when when it was op when it opened in Australia I think the Australians kind of responded badly to what they thought was a kind of a unsympathetic depiction of the Aussie male, scurrilous, and uh, so nobody it didn't although it got very good reviews from the Australian film critics nobody came. Um, but the picture had a certain kind of reputation, but commercially did little. Then, then the film went to the Cannes Film Festival. And of course it was thrilling for a young director like myself to be invited to go to this iconic film festival, the dream of every filmmaker, to be invited. Um, and um, of course uh, the French loved the film. The French loved that kind of men under existential stress, etc. And it did, it's the only country in the world that was success. It ran for nine months on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Nine months it ran. Um, and then the United Artists released it in America. And the film was, um, they, they said, oh, Ted, they didn't believe in the film at all. They said, Americans are not going to come and see this film. It's, and that, they really, really will be offended by that that rather heinous massacre of, of kangaroos, which was the climax of the film. So, as a result, when they put no money into advertising the film, whatsoever. there was no publicity when it opened. It opened in a small cinema on the east side of New York on a Sunday night in a heavy blizzard. And they were right, nobody came. <laughs> they said, told you nobody would come. And there's nothing like distributors for self-fulfilling prophecies. By not spending any money, of course, they guaranteed that nobody would come. Nobody knew his existence, even. But um, and so that was it for the film. It um, there was not even any prints for anybody to see it. And 25 years go by. The film was originally had been financed by half by Australian company and half by a company called Group W Films, an offshoot of Westinghouse, who had a a chain of, of uh, television stations in New England, in the Northeast. And uh, so they started to make films for their, their television network. But the films didn't succeed, so Group W went bankrupt. And that's always death for a film. The film, the negative, falls in the hands of creditors. They don't know what to do with it. They use it maybe for paying off some other debt, and it's passed around. And the film was worthless, as far as they were concerned. The negative, what, what, film had opened in various places, had not taken any money. Um, I mean, I mean uh, United Artists, after the, f the fiasco in New York, they, didn't, they were supposed to open all across the country. They didn't. They yanked it. And that was that. So 25 years was by, and one of the Australian producers was oppressed by some film society that said, where's that film, Awake and Fright? That was rather, rather a good film. I'd like to show it to my students. So he tried to find it, and of course, it had disappeared. And they went to Sydney, they went to London where the film had been processed at Pinewood. Not there. And he couldn't believe it. He rather kind of, he described it 
an exaggerated fashion as a national disaster because because it was, it was a, say a quintessential Australian film. And then, and then the editor Tony Buckley, he loved the film and thought it was a seminal film, a seminal Australian film. So he set out at his own expense to try to find it, and he traveled in between his jobs for 13 years, between jobs. He jumped into a plane, go to London, go to, went to, and they, they said, nah, we sent him to America. After we, he went to Dublin because he heard rumors that there was a print in Dublin, but it turned out to be not the case. Not a usable print anyway. And he went to New York and looked around and said, 13 years, finally he found the negative in a warehouse in Pittsburgh in two huge boxes and it had big red letters on the box for destruction. Had he arrived one week later, they would have incinerated the, the negative and the film would have disappeared forever. So I think that story intrigued a lot of people. Especially in Australia, it was huge that they'd found this thing. And the Australian archives come and got the film. Then the negative, once they, yes, they found the negative, but it was useless. It was scratched, torn, damaged, faded. Mm-hmm. And this another extraordinary man who loved the film and worked at Deluxe Laboratories in Sydney called Antha Simon. The next two years of his life, in his spare time, he digitally restored the film frame by frame, produced a negative which produced a positive with unbelievable colors and clarity and intensity. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that copy of the film is the one that's going to be shown here in Los Angeles and across the country um, next next Friday, October 19th, at the New Art Cinema. That, that. Um, so, I, and I think that, um, and this time, the film was released in Australia, and people flocked to it. It was extraordinary, and, and, uh, and now it just, uh, now it was opened, opened in New York, and people, it was sold out every night, and it got unbelievable reviews, so I was, couldn't believe it. 40 years after I made this film, it's getting great reviews and people are coming to see it. <laughs> Where it had failed totally at the beginning. So it's been, it's been I, gotta, I have to tell you, I've got to tell you, David, this is one of the most extraordinary couple of weeks of my whole life. <laughs> I've never heard of any such thing in the whole history of filmmaking that a film succeeds 40 years after you made it. <laughs> How do you wrap your mind around that? I can't. I just, I'm disbelieving. I'm incredulous. <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> you know. But uh, it's been a thrilling experience for me late, late in my life to have such a thing occur. Welcome back, everybody. And this time we've got uh, another new guest. This time we've got sort of you. Well, you probably would have heard of him before if you've listened to podcasts. I mean, he's uh, he's been featured on some YouTube video or something like that. I can't remember what it was. I don't know, Watch Mojo or something. Um, and that is Michael Dennison from War Machine vs. War Horse and a bunch of other shows as well. Hello, welcome. <laughs> Hey, I'm apparently famous from some YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly made an impression on Andrew. That was the reason I'm here. 
yeah, right? that's it. Some YouTube yeah. video. I saw it, and out of all the names, you know, it was like uh, some, what is it, Chris Hardwick or something like that was on the video as well or something. And I was like, that guy, I got to get him on the show. So <laughs> here we are. Couldn't get Chris Hardwick, so you got me. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, exactly. He's like, Wake and Fright? What is that? So we're going to be discussing Wake and Fright, as you would have gathered from the, the intro to the show. And Mike, as I, like, I'll get you to pimp the podcast at the end, but as I've asked the, the previous two guests, have you heard of this film before? And if so, what's your history with Wake and Fright? I had heard of it, um, and I guess I always felt bad that I had never seen it. Like it was uh, Basically, here's what I knew about it. Australia, Outback, I think it's a scary movie. And so yeah. my impression of it was much different than, I guess, the actual you know, film itself, uh, although it is, it is very frightening at times, um, and it does take place in Australia, so I wasn't misled. But I had no idea of the history of the film that it was considered like a lost Australian film. Like, so I really shouldn't feel as bad as what I did for not catching up on it. Cause it's just what recently was it like in the last seven or eight years that it's kind of been available again for, for the general public to see. So, uh, that was, that was about it. I, d- I knew nothing of the plot itself. I just knew that the setting and yeah. horror and that was it. Yeah. And you know, it's certainly for me, like I only saw it, seven or eight years ago it had a bit of a revival when i think there was a complete print of it found and they they tied it up and and that's what you see on the d on the dvd and blu-ray that's out there and i highly recommend getting the blu-ray if you're interested at all it is a great looking film um and of course as i mentioned in the the earlier part as well it's uh, one of i think two films that have been shown at khan film festival twice uh, so I think the other one was Love Ventura, um, which I haven't seen. I should really catch it. But nonetheless, this is, you know, it's a big film that's been loved by Martin Scorsese. So, yeah, I think because of its revival, I guess, in the last few years, more people have, have grown to know about its existence and, and understand what Wake and Fright is. So what are your initial thoughts on it? What did you feel... You know, did it match up to the, I guess, the, the legacy of, of what it is, this, this epic lost film, this horror film, in a way? Um, I would say for like the first half hour, 40 minutes, it, it did. Um, because it, at least having the idea that this is, uh, you know, uh, a horror film of some sort, mm-hmm. maybe could be misleading. If it's uh, your first time watch, it could be disappointing, I think, to a great number of people. For me, it wasn't because I was enjoying, I guess we would just call it the setup of this this character, this teacher who's just got this sort of one night layover before he gets to, you know, gets to get with the girlfriend on the beach. And this, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that the girlfriend is only really represented by this one sort of coming out of the water beach sequence. Um but it reminded me quite a bit of a film that obviously came later in the 80s, another Scorsese film of uh, After Hours about oh, yeah. a guy okay. who you know, just has that one night experience where things just keep getting progressively worse due to some temptations. And so we see that here. There's excessive drinking. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you would call it excessive gambling. Uh, the amount of currency, it's sort of all in. But yeah. uh, I was enjoying all that. And I... I wasn't expecting where it went from there. Like all of that felt 
I don't want to say by the numbers, but I was like, okay, so he's going to get himself into a fix mm-hmm. and probably be in a situation he's not accustomed to. And I was enjoying all of that. I did not enjoy so much <laughs> where the film went, mainly because I was just totally unprepared for the um, – and we can spoil things, right? Oh, yeah, right? go for like, it. Spoil away, yeah. Okay, the – I mean – excessive and apparently real acts of animal cruelty and death and carnage that we get. Yeah. And that's something that if you've listened to any of my podcasts, I normally say this about dogs. I've, I have problems with any sort of dog violence in films as a dog lover. I've uh, never had the pleasure of owning a kangaroo, but <laughs> I found myself very much in their corner here and it, it was really troubling. And then of course, at the end of the film, you get the little, tag that was like you know this was this was a real act done by professional hunters Mm. which just made me feel worse all over um that being said i overall love the film and Mm. it was not the horror experience that i was expecting but that's what made me appreciate it more and that particular sequence was as horrifying as it'll get for me on film anything with animals being slaughtered like that for no reason yeah i mean that sequence like it's it is a very brutal and and you know if you're not expecting it it will really shock you and i guess because it is very real and you know in australia the the thing that i love about wake and fright is that it does represent an aspect of australia that that genuinely does exist in a certain way like kangaroos aren't creatures that can be farmed and so and we we gladly eat them here in Australia and we feed them as, you know, dog meat and cat meat to our dogs and cats. And so unfortunately the way that they're caught is from exactly like it's shown in the film. So it's, it is, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, Mike sitting there going, well, my trip to Australia is now canceled. If that's how you're going <laughs> to, if that's how you're going to treat your national emblem. <laughs> But um, I'm still sold on Sydney. There's a lot of beautiful women just coming out of the beach, right? Coming out of the water. That was great. Yeah, but just this particular, okay, just the one. <laughs> yeah, no. I'll be a few decades behind on that one. But yeah, uh, but yeah, not so much the, uh, I guess the outback setting for sure. Which is that, that's the other thing I love about the film was I can't remember another horror film tackling like small town boredom, mm-hmm. like being like that's the horrific aspect of the film is like what people are willing to accept. And, you know, he, the main character is really the only one who kind of like scoffs at this. Like he seems like he's above these people. And in certain respects he is, and this, especially that kangaroo sequence where he's, he does express horror and revulsion, what is being done, but then he joins in just through peer pressure. Yeah. And I, yeah, I've not seen that. Like we've seen films that kind of approach it. Like at least in American cinema, you would see like, you know, this, idyllic sort of small town setting and there's like one psychopath or something somebody bad comes to town or like mm. you know mike myers otherwise it's a really like sort of normal setting but here it's the, it's the outsider who's just like judging as soon as yeah. he sets foot in this town and then just like gives into it gives into all this sort of decadence around him yeah. um and not in a sexy way either. There's no, <laughs> it's not Tom Cruise going to an orgy sort of decadence, which I can kind of kind of understand. Yeah, this is. I mean, there is, you know, if if you're looking at the cast of people here, there is essentially just one woman, who, you know, she's the only essential female in the the town, and it's just a, 
it's just a sea of men and it's not like a sea of men like magic mike xxl you know it's a sea of real aussie blokes and you know going back to what you're saying about the beer it's it's almost as if the only thing to eat in this town is beer and one dollar steak and that made me sick yeah like the the, the way it's like you know shot like you can feel the the heat and of course the, the way our main character gets increasingly disheveled and dirty and then like you know when he's like parched or he's been out in the desert you know yeah. chasing and hunting food he comes back and is like draining beer like as a refreshment I, and i don't know it's like it's probably the world's worst like beer commercial as far as like seeing like <laughs> hot women on trucks and like you know going to a football game like it it was it made me want to stop drinking which is truly a horrifying film because i do enjoy to drink and yeah seeing this it was i don't know it it was very strange to see that his initial sort of reaction to binge drinking as being something beneath him and the the other people looking at him like he's got four heads or something like it's just the just the way of life even that sequence you mentioned the woman where the other guys are sitting around drinking like they can't understand why he would want to speak to a woman yeah like they they call him like he's not masculine. He doesn't want to sit around and drink with them. Why would he have any interest in women? Which is is kind of a strange thought, you know, from a red blooded sort of male to have no interest in women but just want to sit around with a bunch of dirty dudes. Well, and that's also the other thing as well with the the police officer, I think it is, who buys John the the beer the first time that he goes into the pub and you know, and John explains that he's a teacher and you know, wants to go to Sydney to visit his, visit his girlfriend, and the police officer's response is, "Are oh, you teachers? You know, all you want to do is just travel. You don't want to sit down in one spot." And and it's just, I don't know. It's it's the frightening, as you're saying, it's the frightening aspect of there being nothing to do and the allure of nothing to do. And he talks about going to the city one time, and you know, it being a bit too much. And it being too chaotic. And I think that is certainly in Australia, at least, and I'm not sure if it's the case in America, but, you know, there is, there does appear to be that kind of divide where the outback people, for want of a better term, and the city people, you know, they just don't understand how they get, how they exist and, and how they go about their daily life. And I think that that is terrifyingly exhibited here because, you know, Going back to one of the things near the end of the film, where John catches a, a a ride with some stranger, and and the stranger says, you know, well, why don't you come inside for a beer? And and John's response is, no, I don't want a drink. And his the the stranger's response is, well, what the hell is wrong with you? Or why don't you want to drink a beer? You know, I just drove you the, all this way, and you won't let me buy you a beer. Really, it should be John buying him the beer, but it's right, you yeah. Know, <laughs> I think so, lad. Come and have a drink, mate. No, thanks. Come and have a drink. No, I'm just not drinking. Only take a minute. Come on, come and have a drink. Look, mate, I've given up drinking for a while. What's wrong with you, you bastard? Why don't you come and drink with me? I just brought you 50 miles and and dust and you won't drink with me. What's wrong with you? What's the matter with you people, huh? You sponge on you. Burn your house down, murder your wife, rape your child, that's all right. Don't have a drink with you, not have a flaming bloody drink with you. That's a criminal offence, that's the... End of the bloody world. You're mad, you bastard. 
it's I don't know it's that idea of mateship that is very terrifying because it only exists by shooting things drinking beer and eating bad steaks and it's yeah it's frightening I guess yeah I would say it's it did come across as very different from you know my experience in like American small towns I grew up in a very small town Mm -hmm. Uh, it's still very cliquish there like they may have that view of you know the, the city folk or whatever but they still sort of band together and it was weird to me to watch this film and you would see a, a group of men who you know would always have a drink in their hand and sort of getting into i guess things excursions together but they're strangely isolated even from each other mm-hmm. like they don't really seem to engage with one another in any sort of real way that i don't even know you have the the one character you have doc who you know can kind of step outside of it and kind of speak on them like he it seems like he's the only one that's making an active choice to be a part of this society in a way whereas the other ones maybe were just born into it but yeah i, I can't say like you know anything that they're doing together they're just functions of you know sort of wasting time together whether you know throwing money in a ring like this there's not conversations being had uh drinking together like there's there's a lot of cheering and rooting on their carnage but mm. i mean i don't think as an audience we ever get to know them as individuals and i don't think they know each other really as individuals they're just known for the place they reside in yeah and i guess the the only real physical interaction or i guess a display of heightened emotion is the best way to putting it is when you know doc is he wrestles with john and it gets it's kind of i don't know it's not it's not homoerotic or anything like that, but it's a, it's just very strange because it's, it appears like that's the only way that they, that these, you know, outback men essentially know how to deal with their emotions on a physical manner. You know, as you're saying, they don't really want to talk to women, but their way of interacting is either punching each other up or wrestling. And that's just, I don't know. It's, it's very strange. It's a, I'm, I'm making them sound like some kind of uh, archaic Neanderthals, but they are—they're just so different from how people in society would expect to to act. And even when John later on in the film stumbles along the main street of of the Yabba, and you know he's he's covered in dirt and he's carrying a gun, and people don't really give him like the disgusted looks that you would expect or, or anything like that. They're just like, there's another guy walking along. There's no <laughs> problems. <laughs> yeah. It seems what, well, what seems sort of normal, um, I think is where some people would have a problem with film. Just, just coming to it, you know, randomly, which I don't know how you would come to it randomly at this point. I did, <laughs> um, you know, when I was on, uh, Amazon, cause I, I told you, I was like, I'm going to just order the, um, uh, the, the Blu-ray, because I, I like all the, the nerdy, you know, uh, features on mm-hmm. film restoration and all that. Um, I was I saw where it was it was offered on a streaming service that I had never heard of <laughs> called Con TV. And it was like one of those <laughs> add-on things to like Amazon Video. And it appears to be a channel that's devoted to like uh, interviews from Comic-Cons. Like just stuff. And it was strange to me. And I'm like, this this film has been relegated to that. And it's like a lot of trashy sort of horror films. So uh, I did want to, you know, ask you like, like the way it's like sort of marketed as like something for like you know I don't know film elitists. Mm. Um, do you think that this 
you know, 10 years down the road will have a, a new life as, uh, you know, just a, a great genre film from the 70s. You won't have to be a follower of, you know, Scorsese's uh, fandom of it back from the first con appearance to the, the second. Do you think that this is something that could play now? Like just with, uh, I don't want to say normal people, but normal <laughs> film fans of just, you know, genre filmmaking. Um, I would hope so. Uh, like the original, I think the US, the original US title when it was released there was Outback. So that kind of plays into the 70s style horror film in a way, you know, not saying that this is like Jaws or Orca or anything like that, but that one word title that is about mm-hmm. one particular thing. So I think that you know, today's day and age, yeah, in Australia at least, it does get a good reception, and there are people who genuinely like it as a film, and they wouldn't be generally classed as, you know, film lovers or anything like that. I think that it's a fairly widely accepted film and fairly widely appreciated film. So I think it's possibly just the rest of the world that needs to catch up. Damn you. Americans and British people. <laughs> well, 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 hey, it's you know, it's it's not being served by being on Con TV, whatever that <laughs> streaming service is. Um, has that always been the case in Australia? Has it always uh, had that sort of backing? I think in the last few years it has done, and it's probably mostly because of the documentary "Not Quite Hollywood." Um, and there's, I think there's like a five ten minute section of that film, which is a really good documentary, and I highly recommend. Uh, checking it out, um, which is about the films, Australian films of the 70s and 80s. And I guess Wake and Fright, and that's part of the reason for this particular podcast as well, is that Wake and Fright was the rebirth of Australian cinema in the 70s. We literally didn't make films for about two decades, up until the 60s and 70s. And there was a real birth of creativity in the 70s. And Wake and Fright was generally considered one of the bigger films. And so I think that because of that, it's a, it's got that prestige name attached to it that Australians, at least, if they haven't seen it, they they would have known at least of it by name. And possibly it would sit along something like, you know, as much as I don't like the film, uh, Crocodile Dundee in the Australian consciousness as a film that exists. Crocodile Dundee and Wolf Creek, possibly. Um, and it's got a few ties. in. Like, Wolf Creek has a few ties in thematically in the, the sense that, um, you know, it's about the danger of the outback and stuff like that. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I would hope that at least this is loved the way it should be. Yeah, if that answers you. More so than Crocodile Dundee. I, I, I wouldn't want that to be... <laughs> representation of Australian cinema. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> and I can guarantee you it's, I mean, when I, when I was, uh, you know, vetting questions as to find out what people thought was uh, Australian films that would be suitable to be discussed on a <laughs> podcast dedicated to Australian cinema. Uh, fortunately enough, out of all my friends, they asked, none of them said Crocodile Dundee. So uh, thankfully I can keep those friends and, and uh, it won't be getting covered here on this podcast. <laughs> but I probably will do a Yahoo serious film. Um, so one of the things I find interesting as well is that Ted Kotcheff is a Canadian director. And one of the, I, the things I've always had a, a feeling about is that 
some if, if a film is going to be made of a certain country's culture or a certain countries an aspect of a certain country often a foreigner is the best person to come and tell that particular story do you think that Ted Kotcheff did a great job here or how do you think he as the Canadian uh came along and told this Australian story well I guess to play into the the stereotype um of just being too nice I do I do think <laughs> that maybe he doesn't what I like about the film is he doesn't necessarily make the uh, the judgments against any of the characters. As I said, like the our main character is very judgmental, and so it's not like we just see uh, uh, a naive. Even though I guess in some respects he is, uh, but it's not just an, an innocent uh, sort of stand-in for the audience, like mm-hmm. someone who's just inexperienced with this culture that just gets roped in and he didn't know what he was doing and don't we feel sorry for all the problems he's going through, all these struggles. Because like, a lot of that is on him. You know, the, the gambling situation, we actually see him win and have a moment of joy and then he he actually takes the time to walk back. So it's like he has enough sense, enough time to think like, okay, this was just blind luck. Do I really want to spend mm. everything I have on me? And so I don't I don't know if that's like I was looking over his filmography and I'm like, no, I've not seen anything else the man has done. <laughs> so I can't really speak to his sensibilities. And that even goes for stuff like First Blood, like yeah. <laughs> Weekend at Bernie's. Things you would have thought that I would have watched at some point as a child in the 80s, but I've, I've missed all of that. So um, I don't know. It is. I, I think you make a good point, though, that, um, you know, if he was Australian – I don't know if he would be would it be more protective in nature like of the, the characters or would it be too insider like maybe just having that that outsider's point of view he's able to represent both our main character and the 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 residents of this small town like on equal measure. Mm. And yeah, and I think that that is I do wonder if, you know, if an Australian would be able to be so impartial, I guess. And going back to John for a second, the the main character of course. I I do find it interesting that he's he's very one track mind in the sense that his goal is to get that thousand dollars to be able to buy his way out from teaching these people in the outback and I think that's the thing that is very interesting is that he doesn't necessarily want to interact with the world around him he just wants to get out and go back and be with the familiar place that he knows the city his girlfriend in the beach and I think that it's a bit of a an, an indictment in a way on, and maybe I'm reading a bit too much into the film, but a bit of an indictment in the way of because he's British coming all the way to Australia and not wanting to essentially take on board the Australian culture, which is obviously what Australians did uh, when we came all the way from the UK as prisoners. Um, and he doesn't want to take any of that on board. He just wants to go back and be at home and, and be... A British man essentially and not appreciate or not that there's much to appreciate with this culture but not accept the culture or actually partake in it other than trying to use you know the two-up game for example as a, a way of earning his money to get out of there and of course that corrupts him and he loses all of his money and goes on a bigger downward spiral and yeah so I think that's interesting at least to say the least. Well, yeah, and it's a game that he has sort of, you know, 
Dorada is, is is stupid. Like mm. it's just like a silly thing to spend your time on. Yeah. But he's he's thinking uh, he's just he'll just do it for that one night. It's good enough for him if it gets him out of there. Um, which it would be life changing in a way if if he's going to get out of teaching. Like it mm. certainly will put him back on this path that he thinks that he should be on. Uh, and that's that's what I really liked about the film is that these choices are presented. He's basically he's given the playbook to himself mm. of everything he shouldn't do uh, with no experience, and he really has to go through that experience. And by the end of it, I think you know he has to come to the same conclusion. Like I probably should not have <laughs> participated in any of this. Like he's, yeah. you know, it doesn't. It's it's yeah. I you know I go back to the kangaroo you know massacre there. Like the fact that as he's doing it, he's clearly conflicted and disgusted by it, and he still does it. Like it's an interesting film to sort of look at, you know, the value of, of experience in a in a way because it's uh, it does have a very unlikable character making these sweeping uh, criticisms of these these people and what they enjoy. Mm-hmm. And but by no means is it a Hallmark movie where it's like he comes to understand that there's glory in this small town <laughs> life. It's like it's like, yeah, killing and uh, vandalizing and just basically you know just getting drunk and becoming a bum. Yep. So I, it's it's a really interesting film. I, I was really glad to have the opportunity to finally check it out. Yeah. And and to think that he could have avoided everything just by going to bed early. And you know, and not going out and having a drink or anything like that. So you know, I guess that's the rule. If you're in Australia or if you're in a strange country or something like that, don't don't go out at night and drink. <laughs> You'll end up in trouble. Um, so, do you have a a favorite scene or a favorite performance uh, within the film at all that you pinpoint as being a standout moment? Well, I, I, as far as the performance goes, I, I don't. I don't find you know, anyone other than our our sort of our, our teacher to be, I guess, given enough time to be like, oh, that's the the, the guy like I really <laughs> sort of identify with because, as you said, they're sort of punching each other or drinking. Or um, I really like the bookend uh, sort of sequences. So I guess if I can cheat, say two, like sort of our very beginning and our end there, where we have a guy who has uh, been. Uh, letting out this room for him while he is, you know, on the job while he's teaching in the outback, and you know, sort of asks like, you know, are you going to want your room? You know, I'm assuming you want your room back when you have to come here. And there's like clearly you can tell like there's probably been like previous conversations. I wouldn't say extensive between these two men, and that guy knows uh, that this this teacher, you know, what he thinks mm. of where he lives, and so then it's you know bookended at the very end of the film where we just see him basically having to return like, like there's and there's no there's no words really you know exchanged it's just like life just sort of resumes uh yeah. as it was and i, I really like that I, I liked i felt like maybe it, you know if there was um you know, sort of an american version of that that maybe that would be expounded upon and it would be mm-hmm. totally unnecessary so i, I like that mostly silent figure who's just there at the beginning at the end of this little adventure well, that's the thing. I mean, Australians aren't known for being great conversationalists. They're usually, you know, one-word answers and how you're doing, good, what, you, what you've been doing today, not much, that kind of thing. And That's so, why you decided to start a podcast, That's right? it, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we go for an hour and a half <laughs> each episode. <laughs> you know, just because you can't shut me up. I've been saving all my words just to record it and make sure the world listens to it. But, 
Yeah, I think that it, you know that it is a perfect example of what an Australian conversation is like. You know, there is even if there hasn't been anything said before, there is the you know the understanding and the knowledge of you're going to be back because I've seen you know the same guys before you go through exactly the same sort of thing and. You know, the kangaroo population keeps on getting smaller and it's all because of you British people. You know, so it's, yeah. (laughs) So that's that's the only kind of uh, economy that they've got. That and and mining, I think, is is probably it for the ABBA. And, you know, apparently being the uh, city or the most beautiful place in the outback, I guess, um, do you think that it, it makes you want to visit the outback? Oh, this film? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) No, it does not. (laughs) I've not seen uh, the Nicole Kidman, Hugh Jackman, Australia film. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's probably not very good, especially compared to this film. But, you know, based on the trailer and the poster, uh, that's probably far more sweeping as far as um, any sort of Australian landscapes. But uh, no, Wake and Fright, as much as I love the film, I'm not buying my ticket to have this adventure, this experience. I don't know if there's like a wake and fright, like theme park where you go through like the, the simulation of this experience, but I, yeah, I, I want no part of it. Yeah. It's just, it's just sand. You know, you just keep on walking out into the desert and that's the wake and fright theme park, uh, in Australia. It's and beer and beer. They're just like random people handing you beers, like forcing you to chug beers, like not one, but two, obviously pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in that regard, would you? Is this the sort of film that you would recommend to people, and or is it? I guess, in the sense, to go back to what you're saying before, non-film fans, in a way, do you think that this will catch on? In the same sense, would you recommend this to your local Kentuckians? No, not really. Um, <laughs> I had a pretty, I had a, <laughs> I had a bad experience. Nah. Uh, <laughs> um, it was about a month ago. Where like a group of uh, friends, uh, we 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 had like basically like a, a movie night, of some sort where we just got together and, and drank, and you know everyone sort of recommended a film, um, and they are not people who probably watch more than a handful of movies a year, and so that's for me that's a good test of what I can kind of you know break out, and I decided to bring as the ultimate you know wild party man, I brought out the original Vanishing, <laughs> and. <laughs> Just to, you know, since we're drinking and having a good time, let's go ahead and course correct the mood. And uh, the strange thing is they were initially enthusiastic about this because, um, you know, I I told them it was, uh, you know, a horror film. And uh, so they were like, oh, I've never heard of this. It'll be interesting to to watch. And they they were like, don't tell me anything more about it. And I guess just saying it was a horror film just really kind of set the stakes a little too high for that. Yeah. and so this one, if I did, I would probably like, I don't know what I would say. I don't think I would try to sell it. I would just like, you know, I, this is the type of film and I don't mean this as an insult because I always love this type of experience where I wish someone would just randomly come across it. Like it just came on television and they didn't know what it was, but they're just going to see like, maybe they'll just watch 20 minutes and see what this teacher gets into. Like, you know, what's he going to do in Sydney when he finally meets up with his girlfriend. <laughs> and then if you just sort of hang with him, because uh, that was my experience with the the, the film that I, I would recommend, mm-hmm. uh, which would be After Hours. That was because I just caught it on TV and didn't yeah. know what it was. 
and I just I just sort of had that experience with the character where I, I didn't know what turn it would take. I didn't know if or when. I didn't even know what the direction of the film as far as what is he supposed to be doing. I don't know what the film was supposed to be presenting me. And I, I like those experiences. But my, you know, history with uh, my friends here in Kentucky, they do not. They want to know exactly what is on the menu. And uh, so, yeah, I think it would be a hard one. I think for film fans, they would really dig it if they've not seen it yet, though. Yeah. And part of me does kind of wish that they had kept that original title. I mean, Wake and Fright is a great title. It's a, it says exactly mm-hmm. what it does on the tin, delivers. But part of me, because of that, that person stumbling around on Netflix or something like that, if they saw, you know, Outback, wow, Outback, that sounds fantastic. Didn't Oprah go there once? Wow, I want to go there. You know, that kind of thing. And they put it on and they experience it and, and get shocked and get to see what the real Australia is like and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I would like, I, I would have loved to have seen it, you know, stick with that title just because because it tricks people into watching it and may you know that's not a very endearing way of pe- of getting people to enjoy your film or love your film ah i tricked you into watching this you know that kind of thing it's but i think for every every fifth person that does do that they'll fall in love with it in a certain, as much as you can fall in love with a film like wake and fright because it's it's yeah it's not exactly a warm cup of coffee on or a cold winter morning, that kind of thing. It doesn't heat you up. <laughs> you're not going, oh, that but if film. You're, <laughs> if you're a subscriber to Con TV, it certainly will be, because I can't imagine what garbage you're watching. <laughs> well, yeah, one one good film there with your Aquaman interviews. So, exactly. uh, yeah, for those people. I, I should probably, um, you know, send them an email to see if I can get an interview with them or something like that. Hey, you guys stream Wake and Fright. <laughs> I want to know about this. <laughs> I want to find out more. <laughs> so, like with all the other, you know, kung fu films and random like Z-grade slasher movies they have on there, you've got one one really good film. So, I don't know. This feels like it should be a part of like the Criterion collection. So that's I don't know. Maybe that something like that, you know, would probably I think get it more out there uh because yeah. you know they're avid fans who just buy anything criterion and so i was actually surprised which i know i guess you know with the draft house label it's got mm. it's not as prestigious but that's also sort of announcing that this is an important important release yeah i mean the draft house label in the u.s is i think that's a good thing in the sense that obviously draft house cinema is quite good cinemas and I think that when Wake and Fright has screened there, and I know that Tarantino's put it on sometimes, it uh, was he got the Beverly or something like that. Yeah, New Beverly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's had a good audience there, but I would imagine it's probably just the same people going over and over again because you get limited opportunities to see a film like this on the big screen, and you know, Draft House. I think they've tried to kind of curate a a good collection of films for their collection. And, you know, they've got some really good ones. Act of Killing, I think, is in there. Um, but then they've also got some documentary about a man who collects penises, I think it is. I can't recall, um, which is part of the collection. And, you know, I'm not... I don't care what you put in your collection, but when you're putting it up alongside Wake and Fright, you know, it's a bit like, uh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> What have you got against collecting penises? Uh, I don't understand. <laughs> have you have you ever seen Tusk? 
I mean, like that's that answers your question right there. The, uh, the Kevin. Wait, Smith are you film. talking about the Kevin Smith movie? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With the walrus. Wait, you're, yeah. you're equating that to collecting penises. Well, the the guy collects. He has a, a walrus penis on his shelf, and then Justin Long does that whole scene. That's just the, one. Oh well, you know, if you got one, <laughs> you got it. You got to have more. <laughs> you can't stop at one. I mean, I'm not talking from experience, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, yeah, you can't stop at one. Basically, <laughs> so you're, you're making a judge. You know, the the collector, but just on the collector. With us, subpar. Yeah, yeah, it's not a good film, but you know, at least that's not in the draft house collection, <laughs> so that's okay. No, otherwise, otherwise, Tim League would be getting a very stern letter from you know. Are you saying that this film is equal? <laughs> you know, Criterion's already pushing it with Chasing Amy in their collection, but anyway, anyway. <laughs> Just turned into a hate on Kevin Smith episode. That's, that's it. <laughs> Take your shot. <laughs> so, do you have anything else to add about uh, Wake and Fright before we wrap up um, and go on a full um, Kevin Smith outrage? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know the, the only thing that uh, I wanted, to, I do want to still watch the the, the feature on restoring this film, mm. uh, but you know it's one that. I could see even without the breath, the uh, the best presentation that it would still it would still work as far as the experience. Like even if you caught this on a like a, a VHS copy or something, mm. like if it, it just has that sort of feel that the it is so it's so honest and sparse. I think it really just could work uh, on any any sort of level as far as however you experience it, whether it's on a terrible streaming service. It's on television late at night, or if you do buy a very nice copy of it, like it's, I don't know, it's, it really is presenting like sort of a, a true experience that is uh, strangely riveting, as much as I disagree with a lot of <laughs> like what I'm seeing on the screen. Um, so, yeah, that's just, uh, I don't know, I think it sort of transcends sort of any um, format, really. It's just a, just a great film. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in that regard. Like, right where that was shot in film and it looks better on film in my opinion with all the the gritty pops and all that kind of stuff and the scratches because it adds to the character of it i think it's actually an interesting feature because i understand that one of the copies that they had of it was just on vhs or something like that and the copy of it wasn't great um so the special features are certainly very interesting um especially because there is a special feature which talks about wake and fright and it was made in like uh, the special feature was made in like 1970. It was shown on Australian TV, and it's called "What Is Art?" And yeah, basically, I've I've used a clip from that for the first episode. Uh, so previous listeners will have heard that. But basically, uh, the man starts by saying, "What is art? Who has time for art in your busy day? Australians don't care for art." <laughs> so I highly recommend <laughs> watching that. It's like six minutes long. It's brilliant. <laughs> It discounts art completely. It says there's no need for it. <laughs> it's a great way to start your your podcast. <laughs> yeah, people people start up the first episode. That'll be the first thing they listen to, and they go, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> so, in that regard, um, where can people find you and listen to your podcast on art and and stuff? 
Uh, the podcast is called War Machine versus War Horse, and the uh, basic premise is a uh, new film, uh, be it released theatrically or lately on VOD, because we're trying to cover more independent stuff and less uh, capes and tights. Um, we'll inspire a conversation uh, on some sort of theme that we pick out. It's basically an excuse to kind of pair off uh, strange double features. So, um, you know, one that we we had was on a, a film called criminal with uh, Kevin Costner that will be, it's probably forgotten as I'm speaking about it now months later. Uh, but it just sort of gave me the opportunity and excuse to watch the big chill, which uh, Andrew, I believe you're a huge fan of and uh, JFK. And so the, the central premise there was, uh, you know, ideas that come out of a Kevin Costner body. And clearly he is, he's just playing a dead man in big chill. Um, and so, yeah, that that's sort of the, the, the premise of the show. It's just an excuse to uh, pair off uh, movies that probably shouldn't be paired up together. Yeah, look, I, I highly recommend listening to it. As, I mean, I have currently said that about every show that I've I've had a guest on for, but I genuinely do mean it for this one, um, you know, and I mean it for the other <laughs> ones as well. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I highly recommend <laughs> I'll just – I'll. I'll... <laughs> Yeah, I can't edit that out now. Um, Drop. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, if you want to like you know interact or uh, uh, recommend you know other double features, I'm on Twitter at War Machine Horse, and the the podcast is on iTunes or Stitcher, or, uh, FollowingFilms.com. So yeah, there's various places you can listen to it. Yeah. Um, so once again, thank you very much for for appearing on the show and i'm sure i'll drag you back in the future for another episode maybe uh, i'll cover uh, baz luhrmann's australia now that i know that you've never seen it um just because i'm curious to hear what you have to say about that film and you know can we do dead calm instead if we gotta do nicole kidman australian film i'd rather do dead calm that's can, just you know for my we, enjoyment level we can do dead calm that's not a problem that's okay i do like philip noise so and I hadn't actually chosen a Philip Noyce film to, to cover. So, yeah, be dead calm. So on a future episode, this will probably be like a year or three away or something like that. Uh, you'll hear Michael again <laughs> talking about dead calm. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> again for listening to the last new wave uh, for more episodes make sure to hit us up on the website abfilmreview.com where you can listen to previous episodes of the last new wave as well as other episodes of the main show which is ab film review make sure to follow us on social media as well which is the last new wave on twitter and facebook and also you can follow us on social media for ab film review as well which is just ab film review if you could leave us a review on iTunes as well, that would be fantastic because it just helps get the show seen and heard by more ears. So once again, thanks for listening to The Last New Wave and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye.